Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and the Trump presidency for the New Spectator USA website. I'm away this week, but um, my colleague Toby Young is filling in for me and he's interviewed the American academic Amy Wax. Hope you enjoy it. Amy Wax, a professor at the University of Pennsylvania Law School, is no stranger to controversy. Two years ago, she co-authored an op-ed piece for the Philadelphia Inquirer, which blamed a lot of America's social problems on the decline of bourgeois values. It praised America's traditional Anglo-Protestant culture and contained the line, all cultures are not equal. That led to her being denounced in an open letter signed by 33 of her colleagues at Penn Law, and partly as a result, she was relieved of some of her teaching duties. Last month, at the inaugural National Conservatism Conference in Washington, Wax made some remarks during a panel discussion about immigration that led to her being described as, quote, an outright advocate for white supremacy by a reporter for Vox. As a result of her remarks, or the way they've been reported at least, a petition calling for her to be fired from Penn Law has gathered over 50,000 signatures. In addition, the law school's dean, Ted Ruger, has sent an email to students and faculty condemning her comments. At best, the reported remarks espoused a bigoted theory of white cultural and ethnic supremacy, he wrote. At worst, they are racist. I spoke to Professor Wax to find out more about the argument she was making about American immigration policy, whether it's fair to characterise it as racist, and why, if she didn't want her argument to be characterised in that way, she used some of the inflammatory language she did. Were you surprised by the reaction to your remarks at the National Conservatism Conference? Well, I was surprised because the level of deceptive reporting and distortion was extraordinary. I, I shouldn't be surprised because the media, you know, can, stoops uh, as low as they can for shock value and sensation. They took one sentence of my 17-minute talk, and it was a classic case of lifting it out of context. It made it sound like I said something I actually didn't say. They paid no attention whatsoever to the argument uh, that I made, which was a cultural argument, an argument that distinguished between a policy and its effects, so-called disparate impact, as we say in the law, and saw those effects namely the racial disproportion the policy would produce as potentially problematic, uh, something that conservatives, if they adopted my policy or thought it was a good one, would have to deal with. And that was turned into Amy Wax as a white supremacist who thinks that our country is better off with fewer non-whites and more whites. She is explicitly has an explicit racial preference, whereas I, in fact, said exactly the opposite. I am advocating for a neutral policy with no racial preference. How serious do you think the furore that your remarks provoked, how serious will the implications be for your career? Well, uh, it's hard to know. I mean, the dean has already sent out an email calling my views repugnant, accusing me of bigotry and 
uh, racism and advocating for some form of, you know, white supremacy or cultural superiority and and ethnic superiority. I forget the exact terms because they're kind of general buzz terms. He sent out that email without ever reading the transcript, even though he knew that it would be available. Um, So it's, it's hard to know. And whether he'll ever read it, I have no idea. It's impossible to know what they will do uh, because it's impossible to know which way the political winds will blow. There are tremendous pressures on the administration of the law school to do this or that. Now, of course, the whole idea behind defending free speech in academic institutions is to ignore and resist those pressures. But Penn Law has never endorsed the Chicago principles of free speech. They pay lip service to free speech, but in practice, they are not great fans. They don't really endorse it. Am I right in mm-hmm. thinking that when you went through a similar experience after co-authoring a piece for the Philadelphia Inquirer in 2017, that your teaching load was reduced by Penn Law in a first-year class you had been teaching is a class you are no longer permitted to teach. Correct. So my mandatory first-year class civil procedure was taken away from me, uh, a class that I'd taught for many years, and I'd actually won a university teaching award, one of a handful of law professors who ever won that award based on it, but none of that mattered. The class was taken from me. So the only issue now is you know, whether I'll be allowed to teach elective classes, I guess. Let's get to those remarks you made at the conference. You began by appealing to a distinction that you made a year earlier in a paper for the Georgetown Review between creedal nationalism and cultural distance nationalism. Do you want to just flesh that out for us? Well, creedal nationalism is this notion that's been brooded about on the right and otherwise Uh, that our country, the essence of our country, what it represents as a national entity, as a nation, can be embodied in a set of propositions, essentially, or a set of ideas or ideals. And, you know, a free enterprise of democratic governance, of rule of law, you know, there's a whole laundry list. uh, And that anybody who subscribes to those ideas can, you know, be fully American. That doesn't mean that everybody worldwide is equally equipped to, you know, be inducted into that code. But the general assumption is that everybody worldwide is equally capable of it. Um, That's a part of creedal nationalism. But there's another kind of nationalism that is what I call cultural distance nationalism that says, no, it's so much more than just what you believe, what you subscribe to. Uh, It's also... Uh, a mindset, uh, a way of life, a set of commitments that go back generations that are transmitted uh, down through the generations through mechanisms we don't completely understand. So something like uh, a suspiciousness towards concentrations of power, individualism, a, a leeriness of tyranny, all of these commitments that come originally out of the English-speaking peoples, the founders of our nation, uh, that's the core. And in a sense, you kind of have to feel it in your bones. Uh, That would be the metaphorical way of saying it. And what that means is that uh, people who come from 
cultures that that don't feel it in their bones, they might have a harder time assimilating to it and becoming American. Mark Bowerland made the distinction in the Wall Street Journal between pre-Enlightenment cultures and post-Enlightenment cultures, uh, people from places that have gone through the Enlightenment and perhaps even a peculiar Anglo-Protestant form of the Enlightenment, might assimilate more easily or more quickly than people who don't. It's just really a hypothesis. Uh, it's a theory about the nature of culture, and it is surrounded by a lot of mysteries, frankly. Um, but I think conservatives would be inclined to at least be amenable to that point of view because they think that culture is powerful and also that it's very sticky, it's very stubborn. Uh, so I said if you, if you take seriously cultural distance nationalism, then you, you are going to favor more first-world immigration than third-world immigration or at least third-world common people, peasant culture immigration, it might shift the balance of uh, the mix of peoples that you would want admitted to the United States. So that was sort of my exposition of those two forms of nationalism, creedal and cultural. That's how I got into trouble because I said, well, one, you know, one problem with cultural distance nationalism or cultural similarity stress is it is going to have a racially disparate impact. It is going to end up potentially uh, favoring white people over non-white people compared to what we have today anyway. That won't be the intent. It's a purely neutral policy, but that might be the result. And it'll be seen as saying the country is better off with more white people and fewer non-white people. That was the line that was lifted. Right. right? So and that's going to make conservatives nervous. That is that is going to give them pause, and it's going to keep them away from taking that idea seriously, whether it's meritorious or not, or even thinking about whether it makes any sense or not. Because really, I was advocating for a more serious discussion about that idea. So to quote the inflammatory passage that Zach Beecham, who reported on your remarks. The passage he quoted is, Europe and the first world, to which the United States belongs, remain mostly white for now, and the third world, right. although mixed, contains a lot of non-white people. Embracing cultural distance, cultural distance nationalism, means in effect taking the position that our country will be better off with more whites and fewer non-whites, unquote. And that was the position which the journalist for Vox characterized as, quote, an outright argument for white supremacy, unquote. Well, actually, right after that, I said that would be the result anyway. And I went on right. to say, of course, cultural distance is purely race neutral. It's in terms of culture. But if it has race effects, it's going to make trouble in some quarters. I suppose someone who wanted to interpret your remarks and that passage in particular uncharitably would argue that if you're aware that a particular immigration policy is going to have a disparate effect and favour favor whites over non-whites, and if you're advocating that that policy be adopted, how is that position not racist, even though it might not be the intention if you know in advance that that's going to be the effect, isn't that a form of racism? Well, that argument is made 
uh, Toby, but here's the problem with that argument. It proves too much. I mean, I could give you a half a dozen policies that our country has that have a racially disparate effect. I'll give you one example because I've been looking at this, the test that is given to enter the military for recruits in the United States, the Armed Forces Qualifying Test. It excludes three times as many blacks as whites, yet the military has been using it for close to 100 years. They don't apologize for it. Uh, It's a screening device. And in effect, if you say, well, that's racist, you're saying the Marines, you know, they're a white supremacist organization. The military is a racist organization. I mean, there are policies we have that have racially disparate effects. We, we take that into account, yes, but we keep them anyway because they, have, they produce other positive goods. This is a discussion worth having. Now, people on the progressive left, the far end, they say, well, it's racist anyway. That's a feature, not a bug. That shows that the entire society is white supremacist. The military, everything. We always have to have racially equal outcomes. That's absolutely necessary. To hell with everything else. Um, no other consideration should enter in. I think that's an extreme position. But people haven't thought through what they're saying when they say any racially differential effect is white supremacy. Well, if that's true, we're going to need to blow up our entire society. You said some other things um, at the conference, which people quoted alongside that passage to try and create a, a portrait of you as a racist white supremacist. You praised Enoch Powell, for instance, um, who uh, is a British politician who famously warned about the dangers of immigration in his Rivers of Blood speech, which um, was considered beyond the pale even when he made it back in the, I think, 1960s um, and effectively ended his political career. You described him as a prophet without honour in the last century. Um, Why did you invoke Enoch Powell's name if you wanted to avoid being misunderstood? Well, first of all, you know, nobody picked up on Enoch Powell because people are abjectly ignorant of, of this history and of Enoch Powell and can't be bothered to, uh, you know, investigate, which I think is part of the problem. Uh, but secondly, I think Enoch Powell, you know, has gotten a bum rap. Uh, if you actually read much of what he said, his interviews with the BBC, his speech, you recognize that, you know, to tar him as a racist is really uh, inaccurate. I think what he's saying is uh, quite cogent, which is that in order to maintain British culture, which, you know, is is a glorious culture, it's delivered many, many positive benefits to the world. It's the culture that we inherited in our founding, uh, in essence, in the United States. Uh, numbers matter demographic stability of the core, call it legacy population, British population, is really important to keeping that culture intact and maintaining uh, a set of practices, traditions, and precepts to which other people, you know, would then assimilate. You need that numerical dominance, uh, cultural dominance, 
in order for assimilation to take place. He also said that numbers matter and that the the flow of people from cultures with disparate commitments can't be too big. It needs to be quite low. He was a low and slow kind of guy, uh, kept to a minimum. In fact, we you know everybody could argue about what the numbers should be. He thought they should be particularly small, and he thought that large influxes of people from non-British backgrounds would make for difficulties, dilute the main culture, uh, create obstacles to assimilation, create divisions within the country. Uh, he just thought it was unwise. But he never implied that these people were somehow inferior, just that they were different. The background assumptions and practices and behaviors were different. That's all. He recognized the reality of cultural difference. So in a way, I'm, I invoked him because I thought he said some wise things uh, and because I think he's gotten a, a bad rap, frankly. I know his name is Mud, and he was just been tarred endlessly as a racist. I, I, I get that. One thing you did, which I think did get picked up on by some of your critics, was to invoke the concept of magic dirt which is a term associated with race realists like John Derbyshire and a way of dismissing explanations for why members of some races on average do better in school than others that make reference to things like school buildings and slum housing but not to cultural differences. What's your understanding of the term magic dirt and why did you think it was useful to bring it up in this discussion? Well, first of all, the discussions I've seen of magic dirt are agnostic on so-called race realism. That is the position that racial or ethnic differences have some kind of component of biological or innate difference that helps to account for them. That's race realism, right? So I've never, I said nothing in my talk or really in anything I've written that, you know, commits me to any kind of race realism. So we should just get that straight. Okay. But magic dirt is a useful term, regardless of whether you're a race realist or you're um, a hard culturalist. I mean, Derbyshire has a wonderful entry in his blog where he says, you know, Amy Wax is a hard culturalist. She thinks that culture is very persistent. It's very sticky. Uh, it's very hard to convert people from, you know, one set of cultural norms and understandings to another. If it happens, it can only happen under specialized conditions. It takes generations. It might end up being imperfect. Uh, if you have large numbers of people from one culture, it may be if you bring them in, you will change the culture because it's very hard to make them just like us. Well, that, that's the hard culturalist position, right? Um, and the term magic dirt is good for that, uh, as well as a more biologically oriented view of what makes groups different from each other. So I borrowed the term because I actually think it's a pretty clever term. It's a term that's actually used in the education sphere as well, that when people move from environment A to environment B, they will instantly adopt environment B's practices and norms like chameleons, right? Just it's, but ultimately, it's an empirical question. 
But, of course, it's surrounded by all sorts of ideological assumptions. You say that, ultimately, it's an empirical question. The question being, I suppose, are people who are culturally distant, and the countries they're from are culturally distant from the United States, less able to assimilate than those who are from less culturally distant countries. Is there much social science evidence of that hypothesis? Uh, Because on the face of it, it's possible to think of counterexamples. So immigrants from India and Japan, for instance, which aren't Anglo-Protestant cultures, um, haven't had too much difficulty assimilating to the culture of the United States and perhaps have been um, uh, more successful uh, more quickly than some immigrants from cultures that do seem to be less distant. So Ireland, for instance. Well, I mean, this is very complex because there, there are a number of points to be made. The first is that the circumstances of immigration from all those different backgrounds are so wildly different. Uh, for example, you know, the people we get from India are a tiny elite of a tiny elite of a tiny elite. This is nothing like mass migration, nothing close to it. Okay, so we get a highly selected population. The second thing is economic success is really only just one aspect. You know, the real question is, will the character of our civic culture, our economic culture um, from top to bottom, uh, our scientific establishment, will all of that be maintained at its very high level of functioning and efficiency? Will it continue to hum along? when we have a massive shift in the demography of this country over generations? Or will there be changes? Now, the other third thing I want to say is sociologists. Sociology is now such a politicized field that sociologists really avoid studying anything where they might get results they don't like. I think that's a fair statement. So many of these questions go unanswered. I think to me the big mystery is, you know, why are third world countries, so many third world countries, so dysfunctional? The people make the country. You know, what? why don't the people, if they are so capable and so committed to what makes the West great, uh, the, the high-functioning European countries, the United States so far, although uh, we're showing signs of dysfunction, if they're so committed to that, why, why don't they reproduce those conditions in their own country? I have never gotten a satisfactory answer to that question. Uh, it's kind of a deep mystery. And as a corollary, when large numbers come here, you know, will they continue the conditions or will they just start acting like us? And what makes us think that they will? Uh, and here I'm talking about, you know, large inflows, really. That's what I'm arguing against not zero, although a lot of people have written me say, why don't we go to zero for a while? Uh, I've never really figured that one out. And I don't think anybody really has figured that one out. You know, the West wrote the book. We have we have uh, manuals up on the shelf about how to run a sanitation system, an electrical system, a transportation system, an education system, a transparent, benevolent government, uh, you know, free and fair elections. We, we've, we've invented all of this stuff. It's there for the taking. And yet these pre-enlightenment countries don't take it. 
Uh, and I think it's it's cautious to ask the question, you know, what gives? Why don't they take it? Is it something about the culture, the way the people think, the way they behave? We, we just don't know. Well, I can think of an answer or at least a way of pushing back perhaps an answer that might be given by um, the Indian American NYU journalism professor who you referred to in your remarks, um, Suketu Mehta, wouldn't he argue that the reason lots of third world countries are not as successful as they might be, given their natural resources, is because they've been exploited, colonized, in general, mistreated, horribly mistreated by the West. And indeed, one of the reasons we should have a more open immigration policy in Western countries, particularly the United States, is to give people from these countries that we have effectively uh, stolen from and despoiled an opportunity to redress these historic injustices by sharing in the bounty that is essentially built on their natural wealth. You may be right that people from Somalia, the Sudan, are going to have some difficulty assimilating, more difficulty than immigrants from European countries. Nonetheless, we have a moral obligation to admit them because the difficulty they find themselves in in their home countries is largely our fault. Well, I totally reject that the difficulties are largely our fault. I really do. That that boils down to the colonialism, imperialism theory for why the third world is stalled out, you know, why it's stagnant or even backward. And I just don't see any evidence for that. I mean, you know, that gets the arrow of causation completely backwards. The reason that, you know, we were able to go in and engage in these exploitations and conquer them and the like is because we were so much more advanced than they were on on so many different levels. If you go back to even before the West kind of discovered all these places and, and started to you know colonize them and exploit them, there was already a, a very large discrepancy. I mean, it's glaring. You know, Africa never developed a written language. Is that our fault? They never developed uh, they never progressed at all in science, or if they did, uh, like some cultures in the Middle East did science for a while, uh, that ceased long ago. Um, they stalled out. I mean, there was a kind of rise of some of these cultures, partial, and it stalled out. That certainly has nothing to do with anything the West did to them. I just simply think that whole colonialism, imperialism narrative is, a non-starter. They seem to be saying, well, you know, if it weren't for colonialism, Zimbabwe would be Denmark today. I, I, does anybody really believe that? The notion that we are preventing Venezuela from, you know, becoming a well-organized, safe, democratic, and prosperous country? No, I'm just, it is Venezuelans who are preventing that. It is their leadership. They do not have benevolent leadership at all in these places. The leadership is out for themselves, not to improve the well-being of the people. And that has nothing to do with anything we've done to them or that we are doing to them today. 
one question which someone at Quillette asked is, it sounded to them as though you were essentially advocating for uh, a points-based immigration policy. And by couching it as an immigration policy informed by cultural distance nationalism, you were creating complications for yourself. And you should have just said, why can't we have a points-based immigration system much like they do in Australia? Sure. But, you know, the question is what you'll assign points for. That's where the rubber meets the road. So my understanding of points-based systems in Australia and Canada are they're based on, you know, levels of education, skills acquired, which are mainly kind of technical and occupational skills oriented towards economic functions and the like, but not what is your background country like, what what kind of systems do they have in place, what institutions, how democratic are they, um, how benevolent is the leadership, how transparent, how accountable. In your remarks, um, one of your objections to a points-based immigration system is that if you only admit the highly skilled, the highly educated, um, you're going to be depriving the countries they're migrating from, from the benefits of having them stay in place. And effectively, you're, you're, you're creaming off the people who would do the most good if they remained in their indigenous countries. Um, can't the same argument be made towards an immigration policy informed by cultural distance nationalism? Why do you want to kind of pool all the people who have a kind of cultural affinity with various systems and philosophical and religious traditions which seem to account for economic success? Why do you want to pull them all in the West? Why not try and spread them far and wide rather than just taking white um, Zimbabweans um, whose farms have been recently uh, uh, nationalized and, and, and giving them a safe berth in America? Well, right. I mean, I think, you know, you have a point there that cultural distance nationalism would also, in certain select circumstances like Zimbabwe, right, where we have uh, white farmers who are actually, uh, you know, under pressure, say, well, we'll, we'll take them. Um, that we would drain that from their country, yes. But I think in most cases, what cultural distance nationalism is going to end up doing as an immigration factor is it's going to reduce the overall level of immigration because it will operate mostly nation by nation, uh, looking at the background nation and what their commitments and practices are. And, And most of the countries that would get a high score, people don't want to leave because they're great countries. They're functioning really well. Life there is really nice, right? So there aren't very many Brits or Dutch who want to come to the United States. Occasionally, I've known people because they see uh, their profession or the sector they're going into is more dynamic, there's more opportunity, but they're very tiny numbers. So the corollary would be we wouldn't get very many people um, based on that, and that, I think, is all to the good. So... It, I don't think it really, in practice, would have the same effect as a point-based system. A point-based system would take that top layer from every country and bring it over. 
And I think the broader point I was trying to make, and David Miller in his very good book, Strangers in Our Midst, makes it very well, is we have such a kind of narcissistic, self-involved, uh, almost preening, so hyper-emotional approach to immigration, you know, that this is a wonderful thing we do. Uh, it's a rescue fantasy. We take these people, we make their lives better, but they're a tiny, tiny number of people uh, that we do this for, and everybody else is just kind of left to fend for themselves, you know. Uh, this vast, vast third world needs really upgrading, tremendous upgrading if lives are going to improve for most of mankind. So really the people who run the countries need to ask themselves, why can't we have nice things? Oh, why, why are we so deficient in so many ways? And the people who are best equipped to do that are the well-educated leadership class. Uh, they're falling down on the job. They are corrupt. They are rapacious. They, they are kleptocratic in these countries. They don't give a damn about the ordinary common people. We can't make them do that. We really can't. And bringing in their best and the brightest is really pushing things in the direction opposite to where they should be going. It's In a way, it's kind of a selfish act. Uh, and that's, that's something that conservatives hardly ever talk about. Given the reaction to your remarks, how optimistic are you that some of the issues you raised will be now taken into account in the national conversation that seems to be taking place, particularly in the run-up to the 2020 presidential election, about what America's immigration policy should be? It seems as though, on the face of it, your introduction of these issues has, has ended up will have ended up making people less inclined to bring them up in future, given the reaction that you're bringing them up provoked. Well, first of all, you know, you talk about a national conversation on immigration. I think the left, the Democratic Party, is very interested in putting us into a straitjacket of what is acceptable and unacceptable opinion. They have effectively become the party of open borders. They have boxed themselves and painted themselves into a corner. Michael Brendan Doherty called this two years ago. He said that the Democrats have such bad Trump derangement syndrome, they can't endorse any restriction on immigration. They can't endorse any grounds for deportation except maybe mass murder. There, there's no measure of enforcement that they can get behind. I mean, they're really hamstrung. And that's put them into a kind of hysteria where well, you know, we have to suppress any opinion that that even deviates in the slightest from our open borders philosophy, because if we suppress it, then people won't think about it, and then they'll, they won't vote for anything else. I mean, you know, I think this is wildly counterproductive myself. I don't see any real conversation on the left. I only see orthodoxy. Um, on the right... There's a little more conversation. My comments have produced a, an outpouring of commentary and comments, comment sections. I've gotten a tremendous number of emails and letters. And I think that in, in the rank and file, ordinary people, they don't, they have a real genuine discussion about this stuff, but they know that they can't talk about it publicly. 
They can't talk about it at work. They can't talk about it at school. They don't have access to the media. They have to be silent. It's all behind closed doors. I'm amazed that people send me emails, you know, because that could easily be discovered, too. So there are ordinary people who are talking very frankly about these issues, but the leadership is terrified. They don't they don't talk frankly about these issues a little more on the right than on the left. So, yeah, I don't I don't think it's shutting down the conversation more than it was shut down before. I think the conversation is stilted. It's completely hamstrung and constrained by Trump derangement syndrome, by the terror of being called out as a racist. Well, I mean, my case demonstrates that that terror is real, absolutely real. As a result, we have complete and total paralysis and a runaway train on immigration. I don't really see that changing. Finally, um, Professor Wax, do you think... um do you entirely dismiss accusations that the way in which you presented your remarks and some of the language you used seemed to be designed to create the kind of controversy that they did create, that you were sort of trolling the libs? I'm thinking in particular of um, your remarks about litter, claiming that less diverse parts of America had less litter than more diverse parts of America, uh, which seem to trigger a lot of your critics. Well, I I don't I don't set out to provoke. I can honestly say that I really don't. I tend to state things plainly. I try to see them clearly and get past, you know, the the political correctness, the the proscriptions. The taboos I try to, re- I honestly and sincerely do try to see things plain, and perhaps I state them too bluntly. So I'm willing to concede that. If I hadn't said that one sentence, you know, I could have said it much more euphemistically, much more softly, uh, made the same statement, and, you know, there's something to be said for that. Uh, I'm not dismissing that entirely. Um, what about litter? Why, litter why did you, yeah. On the litter point, uh, you know, here's the thing. I mean, and once again, this goes back to the fact that sociologists, you know, don't want to look at this stuff or study it. There are variations in our country in the way the public space looks and feels and uh, how we experience it. Um, they're pretty dramatic. You know, North Dakota, which is not a very rich place, just looks and feels different from the border with Mexico. I mean, you can eat off the street in, in North Dakota. There are all these myths about how if it's poor, it's got to be decrepit. I mean, there's all sorts of assumptions that are built in that experience doesn't bear out. You know, I just spent a weekend in the Berkshires, you know, in this tony part of the Berkshires. And it, you, you'd be hard-pressed to find a piece of litter on the street in Stockbridge or Lenox, Massachusetts. You know, it's quiet, it's dignified, it's decorous. It looks like, you know, a little town in Europe. People boast about how it looks about like Europe. You know, which I always <laughs> little, find little highly towns amusing. in Europe often, uh, often, often have quite bad litter problems. The knowledge class, the upper middle class, they it's a sacred item of faith that diversity is an unalloyed good, you know, an unmixed boon, and yet when they go on vacation, they go to white places. I, I just, there's a kind of disconnect here 
between the rhetoric and the reality. Uh, once again, I haven't made a systematic study of it. It's impressionistic, but I see it, you know, I see it and you can't talk about it. You certainly don't talk about it in polite company because at one moment they're bashing white supremacy. You know, they're saying you can never say that, that one culture has greater prowess or is functionally superior or better or brings us all good things to life. Uh, never say that. That's taboo. But on the other hand, the way they act is at complete odds with that. And, and I find that really fascinating. Actually, I find it very interesting. And I'd like to talk about it. But then you're going to induce limousine liberal hysteria if you if you dare to talk about it. So what can I say? Amy Wax, thank you very much indeed. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Americano. And I'd like to encourage you all to give us your feedback, positive comments or constructive comments only, please, to podcast at spectator.co.uk and say anything you like there as long as it's reasonably polite. Thank you.